The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. LinkedIn presents. Welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Well, if you're listening to this show, you know that the company that I'm endlessly fascinated with is Apple. It is a demonstration of what it means to be a 21st century company. It dominates in almost every field that it plays in. It's also filled with complicated issues. tells us it's a statesman or a, a moral company, yet it does lots of things that might not be considered that way. It's also a beloved company, but also one of the most secretive companies in the world. Let's peel that back because this week joining us is Trip Mickle. He's a reporter for the New York Times and author of the new book, After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul. You're about to learn a ton about Apple. Lots of brand new details in this book, which I enjoyed very much. Trip, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for being here. So let's just start. You start the book talking about the transition from Steve Jobs to Tim Cook. Why did Steve Jobs pick Tim Cook as the CEO? Because, you know, you, you would imagine that Apple is a company that would want someone more creative. Tim Cook is more of an operations guy. It's always been a little bit interesting to me that Cook runs the company. It's a, it's a great question. I, there's not a clear answer, but the, the clearest answer I was able to get in the book, and if you read the book, you'll you'll see this, is that... Steve understood that Tim was responsible for about half the company's value at that point. The supply chain that Tim Cook had constructed was so superior to what anyone else had in the world of electronics that to have overlooked Tim Cook would have been kind of cut your nose to spite your face. In addition to that, Tim had some other strengths that I think uh, Steve recognized that he needed to lean on. And that was the fact that Tim was skilled at managing a large division within Apple. Not everybody had that strength. This is a kind of a, a land of silos. And in losing Steve Jobs himself, Apple needed to find a new way to operate. And Tim Cook is the kind of person who's skilled at dissecting an organization and figuring out how to make it excel. Uh, that's essentially what he went to school for at Auburn. Isn't that bizarre to you? I mean, Apple's one of the most creative companies on the planet. And I understand that, like, okay, operationally, Cook helped them get the parts and do do things that other companies couldn't. But it's an operations standpoint. Right. I mean, you know, you even break down, you call him the operator, and you know, you have another character in the book who I'd like to hear more about who you call the artist. But why go with the operator and not the artist? When you say bizarre, the first thing that is bizarre to me as somebody from the Southeast who lives in California, it's bizarre to me that a Southerner would be running this California, California company that like okay, really but, is so culturally yeah. like Californian, right? I mean, sure. it, it, you know, that was part of Jobs' ethos and part of the foundation of it. Beyond that, if you look at where the iPhone was shortly after its introduction, it was at like 10 million units. They're at like 200 million units a year now. That's a huge aspect of what Steve Jobs knew Apple needed to be able to do is just accelerate and, uh, and, and build out the number of units that they were going to have to sell. I mean, the iPhone was going to be, for all intents and purposes, in that moment, the future of the company for the forthcoming years. But address the question. Okay, so Tim Cook ha- has done an amazing job building that out. But is it sort of a capitulation? Um, where you say, okay, like we go, and I've like broke this down in my book, how you're either a culture of invention or you're a culture of refinement. And is the nomination of Cook just sort of an ascension to the fact that you're going to be a culture of refinement? And in which case, fine, because, you know, if you're going to be a Tim Cook culture of refinement, they, he took the company to $3 trillion, um, milked just about every inch of, of revenue you can out of the company and does other things. Uh, that's pretty interesting. You know, talk about the way that Apple has so much cash on hand. 
and it's essentially like the world's largest underappreciated hedge fund, um, which you know I'd like to talk to you about. But what 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 does it signal, and 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 has that has it been the case that Apple under Cook has been this this culture of refinement? The selection signaled that in that moment, Tim Cook was the best per, best man for the job. You'd had by that point Tony Fidel fired. You'd had uh, a situation where Scott Forstall relatively soon thereafter was was ousted, but also probably at that juncture. These are key members yeah, of the Apple leadership. Yeah, these are these are these are key figures at Apple through Apple's history. Tony Fidel being the, one of the uh, one of the contributors to the creation of of the iPod. Uh, Scott Forstall being the software engineer who really speared the development of iOS. That's the, the founda- foundational software for the iPhone and its success. These kind of people were gone. Avi Tavanian, if you go back further, uh, you know, he had, he had helped develop Mac OS, uh, Ru- John Rubenstein, uh, Ruby, as he's known to many of his colleagues, who was the hardware engineer who led the development of the iMac was gone. Much of, much of the, the deep bench that existed at Apple was, was gone by the time jobs jobs die so what do you make of that i mean it's interesting it's like a it sounds uninspired that's that i mean the choice you know, the choice sounds yeah uninspired. well it's like you know I've, I've asked you like so like why tim cook so it's a um he was good at operations b everybody else was gone if you it, it's interesting if you go back and look at the book i mean even jobs himself had had trouble yeah. elevating tim to coo coo he 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 had advisors who had to squeeze him and say, you're going to lose this guy to Hewlett Packard, which at the time had an opening for CEO and had Tim Cook very high on their list of people to, to poach and bring over and run their company. And these advisors stole jobs. If you don't you know, elevate this guy, you're going to lose an important and critical piece of the company and, and why it's been successful. And that was when Jobs capitulated and didn't name him COO, and also gave him license to be on the board of Nike. At that point, there weren't there weren't uh, any other executives at Apple who were on the board um, of of other companies. This all speaks to some of the dark history that Jobs faced. Right, if you go back to the eighties, uh, he he brought in John Scully. Yeah, he. He, he empowered John Scully to lead the company and be somewhat of the grown-up in the room and, and a bit of a marketing whiz, and then wound up being, in, in Jobs' view, knifed in the back and thrown and ousted out of his own company. So he had a reluctance that was rooted in his own experience to empower other people around him. And as a result, Apple was very autocratic under his under his leadership. And that was a key part of its success, right? It was, it was, he was, he was a tyrant and his rule was, his word was final. And, and that was critical to the development of the products that, that they ultimately birthed. Was, was Cook a threat to Jobs' legacy? I think many people who are close to Jobs would look at, at Tim Cook and Tim Cook's background as an operator and say, that choice preserves Jobs' legacy as, as the great you know, the great inventor of all these products. Why not um, Johnny? Why not Why Johnny? Not the head of design at Apple. Steve understood that Johnny Ive's yeah. skills were best deployed managing a, a small team of 20 designers, thinking ambitiously about the products they made and how those products would work and what they would do. And if you take somebody who's, whose strength is in creativity and you give them the responsibility for managing at that point, I think around the time of Jobs' death, it was around like, I don't know, 11,000 people or something like that. And you give them that responsibility when that's not their skill set, you're just setting them up to fail. So Johnny Ive, therefore, was never really part of the consideration for CEO of the company. That's the artist. That's the artist. Artists aren't meant to file expense reports and approve expenses, right? They're, they're, they're meant to be dreamers and be thinking about what, what the future may look like that the rest of us haven't yet imagined. Right. And okay, so it, I, I think it's 
uninspired choice. However, like, and I've been tough on Apple, but my perspective would be that if you put this operations guy in, someone who was there as process of elimination, you know, he might help the company up to like a certain bump and, you know, that would be okay. But he's been leading Apple for a long time now. And the company is, you know, probably stronger than it's ever been. So what did Cook do? Well, yeah, I'm curious if you think that that's accurate, but what did Cook do after he got the reins of the company to make Apple as successful as it is right now? Your question speaks to how many people have underestimated Tim Cook over the years. If you go back yeah, I mean, to that immediate you know, that immediate yeah. transfer of power, most people thought Apple was doomed to fail in that moment, that there was just no way it would continue to excel after Steve Jobs, much less after Steve Jobs being led by Tim Cook, because their skill sets were so radically different. Tim Cook would acknowledge that their skill sets were so radically different. The one thing that he was, and he's talked about publicly, that he was beyond grateful to Jobs for doing is is freeing him from feeling like he had to be Jobs. One of one of the last things Jobs told him was, um, "Don't don't ask what I would do. Do do what you think is right." And and Cook has really leaned into that through the course of his career. And when you get to this question you pose, which is why has Apple ex- excelled despite the doubts from outsiders and the critics? It's it's really because Tim has recognized its strengths. He's preserved those, and through methodical work and persistence. He's turned those into great business opportunities. And to, to expand on that, uh, if you look at, at things like services, that, that's a real testament to Tim Cook recognizing an unseen and, and underappreciated opportunity already existing within Apple's business and elevating it and pushing it to where it could be some, so much greater than it already was. Okay, but also, I mean, that they've expanded the iPhone uh, sales. I think what there was like a hundred million devices when jobs was around. Now billion people have iPhones. Yeah. How did that happen? How did that happen? Well, let, let me ask one more thing. Yeah. Um, so is that is like, we talk about services, but it's one, one fifth of Apple revenue. So is the expansion of Apple uh, selling the iPhone actually what's behind the company's, you know, two and a half trillion dollar valuation and just bombs away revenue that they you know, bring in every quarter. For sure. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, for sure. Because services <clears throat> wouldn't wouldn't be one fifth of Apple's revenue without the distribution underlying it from the iPhone's expansion. So the the two are intertwined, um, and that's what that's what Tim Cook has been so effective at doing is taking this seminal product, literally the best selling product in history, and finding ways to build more value on top of it. Uh, whether that's with services and software or with with the watch, which wasn't necessarily something that, that he dreamed up, but was something that he supported and advocated for. Yeah. And so you said that he, let's go back to the strengths. He saw Apple's strengths and exploited them and helped the company become bigger than, than it ever was. What were the, what are the strengths? Strength is, the strengths of Apple are primarily its, its culture, its ambition, and this is a really hard thing for people to appreciate externally. It's attention to detail and perfectionism that just permeates the entire operation. And, and that, that is something that even as big as they've gotten, where they've gone from, you know, like 12,000 employees to 140,000 employees, they've been able to maintain those underlying and underpinning aspects. And by doing so, they're able to continue to release products that are that are sharp. Are they as perfect as products were in the Jobs era? Not always. Was were Jobs products always perfect? Ping is an example of a product that they pulled back from the market almost immediately. Um, but they Apple has been persistent in in perfecting the products that it's introduced, and as a result, it's been able to build real value. So you think Apple's culture is um, one of its strengths? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, can I elaborate on that? You should be able to. You just wrote the book. So. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of the best way to elaborate on it. I mean, I, 
you've dealt with, you've come across people from Apple. I mean, they have an attention to detail that is, that is exceeds many other companies. And if you look at the best way I can elaborate on that is if you look at people who leave Google, they often go on to do startups and those startups have success. And so by contrast, if you look at the people who've left Apple, often they pursue startups and those don't, they don't live up to the, to the ambition of the, of the founder. And, and one of the things that many of those founders will tell you is they begin to hire other people. And if those people aren't from Apple, if they don't have that kind of Apple culture within them or that, that belief in perfection and attention to detail and hard work, there's, there, there breaks in the chain. And those startups struggle to deliver on, on the ambition of the founder. And, and, and that's what Apple has. Like they, they all work together toward a goal. It's not always as clean as they would like. And I, and they leave us with the impression that it is because they don't tell you anything about the hardships they run into when they're developing products. They just release them like rabbits out of a hat, but, but they do get it done. Um, and I, and I think that kind of startup world that you and I are both familiar with here in the Bay Area is a testament to, to why Apple's culture is so strong. Right. And, and, you know, I, I remember speaking with someone, and this is in my book, but someone who had been at Apple, who uh, was in this, she mentioned that she was in this hotel room or hotel conference room and picks up a mug from the table and she feels the mold line between the handle and the cup. And she goes, they could have just taken a little bit more time and smoothed that out and then pauses and goes, F you, Steve Jobs, because that's the sense of perfectionism that Apple had imbued in them is that everything needed to be as perfect as possible. That's a great example. And and you run into that constantly, and it is kind of mystifying when you look at people who've who've spun out of Apple and who, who had great success there and have not been able to replicate it elsewhere. Uh, Tony Fidel is one of the the exceptions to the rule. He was able to have a second act with Nest, but that's few and far between in, in the Apple landscape. Doesn't that make Apple struggle with software? Because with hardware, okay, I get it. Get the mold line off the cup. With software, a lot of the times it's you get an imperfect product out, iterate, improve, iterate, improve until the point where it's actually something that lots of people want to use. But it's much more difficult to do that, you know, to get it perfect right the first time. And Apple has struggled with that. Look at Maps, for instance. What's your perspective? Right. If you talk to, I, I recall talking to somebody who left Apple and landed at Facebook and they were on the software side of the equation and they they found it invigorating to be able to work inside an environment where where they a b tested things and where they did iterate and improve whereas at apple they felt handcuffed because they would do all this work and do a product release annually and then they turn around and do all this work and do a product release annually and they didn't have that kind of refinement that you're talking about that is customary at, at, at more software centric companies like facebook or Google. okay I also want to ask you about the subtitle of the book, um, how Apple became a trillion dollar company and lost its soul. So we talked a little bit of how about how Apple became a trillion dollar company, right? It is sort of relentless operations, um, uh, the ability to apply some of the principles uh, out to different products like the watch and, and now services. Um, but what about losing its soul? What, what is Apple's soul and how, how did it lose it? It's a pretty bold subtitle. So this, this, the subtitle is a reference literally to, to the relationship that Steve Jobs had with Johnny Ive. He considered him a spiritual partner and a creative soulmate. So literally Apple lost its soul because Johnny Ive left the company in 2019. Metaphorically, it also speaks to some of the reasons that Johnny Ive became disillusioned increasingly during the Tim Cook years and eventually departed. Because the company became a place, because the company was once a place where art led to commerce, and with time it became a place where commerce dictated art. What does that mean? That means that shortly after Steve Jobs' death, there was an understanding internally within Apple that if we're going to pursue a product, it has to be a minimum of a $10 billion business, because otherwise it's not going to deliver enough financial value to us to meet the expectations of Wall Street. It will be more trouble than it is worth. So 
all of a sudden there were commercial restrictions on the ideas and products you might pursue. And isn't that short-sighted also? Because, you know, how are you supposed to know if a business is going to be 10 billion at the outset? Well, I mean, you can look at things like, okay, there are giant industries like healthcare or auto or, um, or energy. All of a sudden the iPhone was so big that these were the type of sectors that Apple was looking at and saying, for us to continue to grow, those are the those are the arenas that we have to be playing in, mm-hmm. because they had already saturated the electronics market and pretty and, and pretty much dominated it and become the the, the lar- largest profit generator in that world. So they they had to look beyond those those walls that they were they were kind of built to excel in and 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 chase other big industries. And how do you think they've done? trying to chase those industries. It's been uneven, right? I think we could I think we can look at the the track record over the past decade and say that that of those of those areas that they've decided to pursue, the the foremost are healthcare and um, and auto. We we still don't have a car even though they set a goal of releasing one by 2019. And with healthcare the watch got off to a shaky start. It took some time for adoption to build. It's been growing since then. It's still the linchpin of their health ambitions, but its health capabilities are somewhat limited. And their exploration of things like medical, digital medical records um, has, has yet to yield anything that's benefited the bottom line. Right. What's your sense of what's going on with the car after? having reported on it still at it you know still trying to solve still still trying to solve a hard problem (laughs) i mean the book goes into great detail uh highlighting why they had this ambition to come in and disrupt tesla in the same way they disrupted nokia years years earlier in the smartphone world and why they weren't able to fulfill that ambition and in large part that's because of dissension within within the ranks between senior leaders, uh, the people who were advocating the idea of disrupting Tesla were largely on the engineering side, the hardware engineering side. Designers such as Johnny Ive were av- advocating full autonomy, which takes much, much longer. And while that would be a huge leap, the world's not ready for that. Waymo has been at it more than anybody else, and we still don't have full autonomy from them. So how do you then square Apple's culture, right? Which you talk about this, you know, culture of perfection, a very, a very effective culture, in your opinion, with the inability to, you know, come to an agreement on on a car, for instance. Because my reporting tells me that this car is is nowhere near close to being ready to hit, you know, to to even achieve the basic goals that it's wanted to. Right, right. So what? How does that get get to the get to the idea of perfection? Well, you said they have a cult. Their culture is one of their strengths, but it sounds like with the car, the culture is one of the biggest drawbacks. If you talk about the infighting and the inability to agree on what it's, I wouldn't be. argue that the problem there is perfection. I would, I would say that the issue is how hierarchical Apple is. And yeah, so say more about it, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's such a hierarchical company. I mean, there are literally a, a dozen people that meet once a week and chart the direction of the company, and then it flows and filters all the way down through the ranks. And in the Jobs era, he was he was kind of the final bid of hierarchy for the company. But in the in the Tim Cook era, Tim's largely stayed out of product, and so you've had a bit of a void. He's left he's left his lieutenants to sort out their disagreements among themselves, and not provided that direction because again, he, he he's not a product guy. He doesn't try to be a product guy. That's not his nature, and as a result these disagreements have, have popped up as we've seen in the car case. And that's, that's slowed some of their product development. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think it's amazing that Apple continues to chug along given that all the, all these bullet points or all these data points I would think would hold it back, but um, it continues to, 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 to crush it. So the book is after Steve, how Apple became a trillion dollar company and lost its soul. We're talking with Trip Mickle. The author and the reporter, and reporter at the New York Times, new reporter at the New York Times. Congrats on the new job trip. We'll be back after the break 
um, to talk a little bit more about Apple's relationship with China, which I find endlessly interesting, um, and as well as to address some of the questions that have popped up on LinkedIn and Twitter and talk about Apple's approach to politics. So stick around. We'll be back right after this. I'm Kwame Christian, and I am the CEO of the American Negotiation Institute, and I want you to check out my podcast, Negotiate Real Change. Listen to conversations with leaders in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, and learn the secrets behind what it really takes to become a successful advocate, ally, and change maker in your organization. Check out Negotiate Real Change on your favorite podcast player. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back here with Trip Mickle, reporter at the New York Times and author of After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul, Soul being Johnny Ive. All right, let's talk about China. Um, how important, you know, we talk about how Apple's become this two point, you know, X trillion dollar company. How important is its relationship with China to do it? I mean, we talk about how um, they forge relationships with the Chinese government. Uh, they have a very big market for the phones there. And uh, their manufacturing is tied up pretty intricately into China. Yeah, 100%. You just laid it all out. I mean, that, it, is, it is foundational to their business now. And if, if you go back and look at the, the moments that they've had slip-ups, it's largely been China-related. The best example being... Early 2019, when they had to they had to slash guidance because the iPhones that they they expected to do quite well in China fell far short of their expectations. And this is a rare miss. It's been 16 years since they'd had to slash guidance, and uh, and that just underscored how important the sales are in that market. And then on the flip side, a year later in 2020, they slashed guidance again because. China was the first to get hit with COVID and they shut down a lot of their manufacturing operations. Um, and Apple was unable to produce the phones that it needed to sell around the world. And, uh, that dependency in China was once again under a microscope. And this, this most recent, um, quarter, they also, uh, they basically crushed their earnings expectations, beat everything except for iPads, which people expected. And, you know, then they do the conference call and they talk about how they're going to have some issues with China in the coming quarter and their stock just plummets. Right. They were, they were punished by investors, not for their past performance, but for what's, what's, what's currently occurring, uh, because of, yeah. because of the COVID restrictions in and around Shanghai where they've had to shut down a lot of their factories. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. There was a, I think you've had Jack Nickas on here before. And I think Jack had a line in his New York Times story, uh, couple of years ago or a year ago about about Apple and China and his turn of phrase when it came to China was there there is no plan B. Um, right. Yeah. So yeah, we I spoke with Jack about that. Um do you do so Tim Cook has like talked about how uh, or Tim Cook is portrayed as this like statesman like CEO who talks about like all these issues um and you know points Apple as the moral good good company. You know, there's also been reports that I think it might have been in Jack's story that like they've had like, you know, they've worked with subcontractors who, um, you know, have plants in Xinjiang and like maybe that labor is coming to them, you know, in like pretty unethical ways, you know, via the Chinese government. Uh, maybe you can clear up what I'm what I'm saying here. But um, doesn't that does it compromise them ethically, morally at all by being that, you know, closely linked with the government in China? For the astute viewer, it does, but for the average person, that's not on their radar, and therefore they haven't faced a lot of blowback. I, 
I, it does seem like if you look at the shifting political winds in the country, that that could change in the future. If, if we, hmm. if we wind up in a situation where there is a big wave of Republicans into Congress and the Senate, they seem more inclined to hold tech companies' feet to the fire uh, on, on their dependency on China and some of their um, grandstanding in the U.S., if you will. Um, there was a good example of this about a week ago. There's an FCC commissioner who put out a letter criticizing Tim Cook for making a, a, a really eloquent speech yeah. about privacy and how important privacy was and how Apple was kind of a bulwark to protect consumers' privacy relative to its its tech peers. And and the FCC commissioner was like, yeah, but what about what about China? Like you have this huge business in China, this huge empire. If you're so concerned about privacy, why have you taken down VPNs there? And and went through a number of issues to point out the inconsistency between what Tim Cook was saying about privacy in the US and what Apple's actions are in China itself. Yeah, that was Brendan Carr who's been on the oh, show. I didn't realize Brendan had been on yeah. the show. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I, th I found it interesting. I thought it was weird that he concentrated only on the Voice of America app, which is the thing that he was like, why are you taking this down? But, um, you know, it's like, but anyway, I, I do think that like, it's interesting that it was called out. Here's, I wrote this question down. Can it, can a company that big, you know, 2.6 trillion global operations obviously makes deals with, um, you know, governments around the world. Can a company that large be principled? Or is it sort of a, fa a fallacy? What do you think? A company that large can talk about being principled, but I, I don't think we have <laughs> any evidence of a company that large actually being, you know, the Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa, right? I mean, they, you know, right. it's really only individuals, and even even they're flawed, right? Um, but it's really only individuals that can can be principled and see that that, that kind of like principled nature all the way through. So right. as best, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear examples otherwise, if you, if you think there are, but, um, but I can't point, point to one. No, I think it's difficult. I think I always find this, like, you know, we are the moral good in the world coming from corporations, um, to be a little weird. Like, you know, I would, I think it would be much more honest to be like, Hey, we're here to sell phones. Tim, Tim, Tim Cook was astute and attuned to that. I mean, if you go back and the book hits on this, hits on like where this kind of principled presentation came from that Apple's really advanced is really rooted in their effort to develop a brand campaign and hmm. in and around 2012, they were under a lot of fire at that point in time because the New York times had done its I economy series, highlighting how many jobs had gone to China, some of the working conditions for workers there. Greenpeace was really upset about some of Apple's, um, not even at that point, greenwashing, but just really kind of environmental practices. And the company was really trying to push back on that. And it decided for the first time in years, it was going to develop a brand campaign. Um, it was going to be the first one since Think Different. And in the course of that, one of the ideas that were floated by the ad agency that was working with Apple on this was this idea of leave the world better than you found it. Um, uh -huh. And it was, you know, it, it was a really captivating idea ad in that it, it showed a, a tree that kind of like had grown up and gotten really, really big. It started as like a small apple tree. And, and this was a kind of a cartoonish like drawing and the tree gets really big and it's highlighting all the responsibilities that as a tree gets that much bigger that it has to the world. And it culminated with the tagline, leave it better than you found it. And Tim Cook looks at it and it really resonates with but he says, you know what, I'm going to use this internally because I can't very well go out and say, we're going to leave the world better than we found it right now when we're under attack for environmental issues, we're facing criticism you know, for worker mm -hmm. conditions in China. But he did internalize it. He did use it to rally staff. And then gradually, as Apple improved in those other areas, he began to use it publicly as well. Yeah, it's been a pretty successful campaign for that. Right. I think people generally feel good about owning iPhone products or Apple products, whether they should or shouldn't. Right. It's been really so. successful for them. And it's also been critical for Tim Cook finding a way to redefine himself relative to Steve Jobs. You know, Steve Jobs, if you're if you're stepping into the legacy of this this executive who who was so tremendous in terms of 
dreaming up and introducing revolutionary products. That's not your thing. So you can't do that. Um, this has become Tim's, Tim's thing. I mean, he, he's talked a lot about these issues. One of the first things he did after becoming CEO was introduce corporate matching to, um, to nonprofits. Um, and these things have been really effective in terms of winning over staff and having staff believe in the Apple mission within the world. But it's kind of interesting because it also made Tim Cook kind of hated by his hometown. Right. Right, right. It is kind of funny. I mean, that that was the most fascinating thing about doing the reporting for this book was going to Robertsdale, Alabama. It's about an hour outside of Mobile and showing up and thinking, this is a small town. Of course, he's got, of course, everybody's going to want to talk about Tim Cook because he's local boy done good. And, <laughs> and instead, you'd knock on doors and people would kind of bristle at the notion of talking about Tim. And that's largely because as I, I peeled it back, in, in 2014, Tim gave a speech about seeing a cross burning in Robertsdale when he was a teenager. And the town just, A, didn't believe that cross burning actually happened, and B, didn't appreciate having a kind of its spotlight spotlighted for the world and thought that it put the, put the town in a negative light. And therefore, they just don't really like Tim in his own hometown. It's very strange. Yeah. There's some uh, kind of interesting details in the book about how the story doesn't fully add up. Do you think he made it up? He was challenged by a close friend about that, you know, who, who sent him a pointed email saying, Tim, if this happened, like, what did you do? Did you go to the police? What action did you take? And he just kind of shrugged her off and said, uh, do you not believe me? Um, there are some teachers around that time that knew Tim Cook and they recall him telling stories like this um, or about that event. And so it does seem to have, have some grounding in his own memory and his own recollection. But the town itself doesn't have any recollection of this event. And it's really hard to bear it out. I mean, I, I reported that one pretty deeply. And, you know, it, it was a cross burning in the yard of a black resident. And there weren't black residents yet at that time because it was a sunset town, uh, meaning most of the black black community lived in neighboring communities. And when they when sunset arrived, they were they, they left Robertsdale itself. Hmm. Yeah. Did, did Apple. Um what was it like working with Apple on this? Did they play ball? Did they make Tim Cook available? Uh, Tim Cook didn't respond to any of my emails or outreach oh, wow. to, to, to uh -huh. talk to him for this book. Um, Apple took its its standard tact, which is you know we're we're not we're not going to make anybody available. Uh, I don't know how often you've had a chance to interview people over there, but generally speaking, they don't believe in talking about the past. They don't generally. Believe in talking about the present, and they certainly don't believe about in talking about the future. So, in, in essence, they, they kind of don't talk. Like that's just their nature. That's kind of their starting point, ground zero for them. Yeah. So, do you think that was a uh, you know a, sort of a blessing or a curse for you when it came to reporting this book? Because I feel like you can also always like. I mean, it's nice to be able to speak with the principals, but um, I feel like you can tell a more honest story without like having to include their spin. Well, if I was, if I was able to speak with principals, it wouldn't preclude me from yeah. talking to others and, and rounding right. out my understanding of things. I, I generally come at things and, and think, look, I have an open notebook. I want to fill it with as much, much as possible. And, and in doing so, I'm able to kind of weigh different and competing narratives so that I get the most accurate story to bring forward for a reader. I mean, that's, that's our job in essence as reporters. And so I, ne I never enjoy having people tell me like, well, they don't want to talk to me. Um, that, that just means I can't do as good a job for the reader as I need to. Yeah. Okay. That's a good point. All right. Are you open to take, we, I asked uh, folks on LinkedIn and Twitter, um, you know, if they had any questions about Apple and like a bunch flooded in, you down to take some of them? Yeah, sure. I saw some of those flooding. I, don't, I thought it was cool yeah, that nice. you, uh, you, you you crowdsource this one. Yeah. Also, um, the, that thread is going to stay open on LinkedIn. Um, so if folks want to come in and you know trip, if you were up to respond, like that would be cool. We would 
But anyway, let's let's keep the questions flowing, and maybe we can get Trip back in, in the comments there. Um, and I'll I'll put a, a link to your your Amazon page, and we can um, we can roll with that. All right, let's take this one from Michael Cohn. He said, "I'd love to know uh, your take on whether I've had to move on for Apple to become a trillion dollar company." We all think he was the soul of the company we use, but he wonders uh, if his focus on design over functionality took the pendulum too far in the wrong direction. I'm going to answer that question in two ways. First, in looking back at the history of Apple, it's pretty clear that its alchemy is rooted in pairs. Jobs and Waz Mm. built the company. Jobs and I've sort of rescued the company from bankruptcy. And then I've and Cook were responsible for this most recent decade where you had the two seminal products being the watch and services, each one responsible for a separate piece of that. So I think Ives' contribution to this decade has been been hugely important. Um, it's It got off to a rocky start, the watch did, but the wearables business has become a $38 billion business. And that's a, a very valuable piece of, of Apple's overall sales. Um, did he... Did, did in his period of being part-time, did there was there evidence in the eyes of people at Apple that form trumped function? Yes. Yes. And, and, and the book details that largely through the experience of Apple employees once they got to Apple Park. Um, they just felt that there were some things that were overlooked that could have made the headquarters and the headquarters experience sharper and and a better experience. Name, I mean, a like, great example is walking into the glass walls. Just like the lack of the lack of anticipation right. that people might do that. So, so tell that yeah, story because yeah. people people would. I think it's a Mark Bergen story. Yeah, yeah. Who's going to be on the show? Yeah. So, so people would walk into the um, to the walls inside the headquarters because they were that. It's so clear and so pristine. Uh, the glass internally, and there are walls that separate various <laughs> pieces of the circle from each other and doors that people would just walk straight into the door. And so eventually, um, and they, you know, there were enough of these that they were calling 911 and bloody noses and so on and so forth. And so, <laughs> so employees eventually started, uh, you know, walking some of them with their hands out saying they were like almost like zombies just to be sure, like they would, their hands would hit the glass before their nose did. Um, <laughs> and early on, because Apple was having such a hard time with this, they, they ordered tons of stickers and they went in and put them up so that people could see the glass. So these are like little black dots that go on the glass. Mm -hmm. So they're blemishes on the perfection of the glass itself. And staff took to calling those uh, Johnny's tears. Oh, amazing. Okay, cool. By the way, did he speak with you for the book? You know, we, we just don't get to talk to everybody. So, you know, you try, you try your best and get to everybody and you ask and you ask. I got an email from him because I sent one, one detail uh, that we were able to come across. It was a video of his father developing hovercraft many years ago. And I, and oh, I wow. just sent it to him just because I thought it was just so cool. Like this is ancient BBC footage of, of his dad in action. And I, I sent it to him and I talked to a lot of people who remember working on it. And he wrote me back. He said he remembered it, you know, just like it was yesterday. Um, and that was like 50 some odd years ago, 60 years ago that, 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 uh, that hovercraft was, was built. So there's one quote from Johnny in the book. It's, it's from that email. <laughs> wow. And that was the extent of it. Did you speak to Steve Wozniak? Woz has a busy schedule. So he, he, he uh-huh. was not able to make time, but he, his, his story has been told and it was not, it was not uh, right. at, at the centerpiece of, of this, of this book. I do have some commentary from Waz because I remember, uh, and I don't know if you were there, but they did the 10th anniversary release of the iPhone in 2017. And it was the first event on campus and Waz was there and he was kind of holding court with a lot of reporters talking about right. how the Steve Jobs theater was just so emblematic of the design sensibilities of, of Steve himself. And so there, there are some quotes from, from Waz in there, including his, his pronounced skepticism that the iPhone, even after that 10th anniversary edition had much life left in it. He was, he was, he was kind of ready for a post smartphone world at that point. Yeah. 
I remember that. Yeah. So um, for my book, I, I emailed Waz and I was like, let's, let's meet. And I think he, he emailed back and he's like, nah, I don't really do business books. And then I was like, well, and I was like, maybe you should, cause they're ABC. And he's like, all right, in which case let's figure out when and where. And it was this hilarious meeting. We had like me, him, his, I think his wife and his business partner all met uh, down in a diner um, and just kind of, you know, shot the shit about um, sort of Apple's uh, culture and stuff like that. He's, he's an interesting he's dude. Very interesting he's guy. An interesting yeah. dude. Yeah. I, I think that was probably the one and only uh, meeting I'm going to get with him. Yeah. Though. Um, all right, let's go back to some questions. So this is from Michael Brown on Twitter. Was there a deliberate shift from the magic of technology through Steve to focusing on turning customers into large locked-in recurring revenue? I think that's great. Like, right. it was, it was, it's basically a pointer up on like, um, you know, had Apple basically decided that, you know, it had its products and now it was just basically time to milk revenue out of consumers. I, 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 th- I think Steve Jobs also, he, he was, he was at the forefront of building the walled garden. Right. So I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't think he would, he wouldn't have any uh, qualms about saying like, well, if we build a walled garden and it's better than any other garden, and everybody stays in there and like we milk money out of them. Like he would, he would be supportive of that. I'm just playing Monday morning quarterback here and guessing what his attitude would be about that. Uh, Apple has done that quite effectively, um, but they've looked to, to stretch beyond that to some degree. Uh, you know, the watch was their effort at that. And again, it was, it was uneven uh, with its introduction, but it has gained ground. Yeah. Um, we got another one from Maribel Lopez. Uh, how has the process of innovating changed in a post-Jobs world? It's interesting because, yeah, it seems to be like Jobs would be the source of most ideas. I liked how he, you had a, this anecdote in the book where he would go to Johnny. He'd be like, I have a lousy idea. Johnny would be like, most of them actually were lousy, but some of them would just like, you know, silence the room. And a lot of this stuff came from Jobs's and, and Johnny's brain. So how did, how did it change in a post-Jobs world at Apple? So in the post-Jobs jobs world, the 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 reason that the book focuses so much on, on the watch is because that is the preeminent example of the product that they introduced that was new and a new product category after jobs. Um, and Johnny drove much of that. I mean, he really was the driving force behind it. Um, it has, there, there, there are some competing stories about what the first idea of it was, uh, whether it was, was Johnny at a, at a whiteboard, which is a story that's, that's highlighted in the book, you know, writing the word smartwatch on, on, on the whiteboard for a few of his, his designer colleagues and saying, this is what we're going to do. Or it was some of the designers kind of just banding about text messages and saying like, Oh, we're, we're going to, we're going to do smartwatch and a, and a designer who wanted to just test the idea the next day came in julian honig who wound up doing a lot of lead work on on the watch and making a model an early model of Maka. Um, but it really was sprung from the studio even though ideas were percolating else, elsewhere and the reason i bring that up is because at apple there does need to be a driving force to get products into the marketplace to get products to develop and the open question now with Johnny gone is like, who is that driving force? I don't have the answer. And I think maybe we'll get the answer when we see AR glasses or when we see a car come forward. The car, to your point earlier, it seems a long way off st- still. And like by the time that comes forward, how many people will have run that project? You know, I mean, they've been churning through executives and leaders on it for a long time. Yeah, and it's interesting now that Johnny's no longer at the company. No words. I always thought, yeah, design was the the source of it. I heard it's moved to marketing in some ways, um, but I guess we'll find out. Thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think marketing has has more more sway over over the future of product as a consequence of mm-hmm. of Ives absence. Again, this is a very hierarchical mm-hmm. company. Um, yeah, and and without somebody from design with a seat at the table at the top of the hierarchy, which in Johnny's absence, that doesn't exist anymore. Jeff Williams is the, is the person running design and he is, he is there at those executive meetings. Um, but he's, he's not by nature a designer. Uh, so therefore (laughs) marketing, marketing has a bigger voice. Yeah. Yeah, It's interesting. And I guess that goes to your point of commerce over form. 
to start to start with. Okay, here's one. Here's another one from uh, man. I feel like I should have just turned this over to LinkedIn and Twitter. If people are asking great questions. Um, this is from Abdullah seventy seven. I couldn't understand the logic of the first gen gold Apple Watch focusing on the luxury element when in reality the watch will be practically obsolete from a technical standpoint in a very short period of time. What was Johnny's thinking about this? So I guess it like sort of goes to like you know you know why make this expensive gold band if you're about to develop the next generation pretty quickly? Like why would people pay that much money? And it's and to to build on that, it is interesting that they transformed it from a fashion thing to a health thing. So maybe you could talk it's a little a, bit about it's that. A, it's a great question. And one that the, the book spends a lot of, t- a lot of time digging into, which is, which is why was, why was fashion so critical to some of the early marketing of the watch? And I came into it with the, with the attitude and mindset that a lot of outside observers did, which is like, that just seems like crazy. Like, why, why would you, why would you spend a ton of time and energy on that? And left with a, a deeper appreciation for the thinking behind. It. If you go back and you look at um, what made, in in the eyes of a lot of a lot of people at Apple, what made um, the iPod so successful was it it was this convergence of what Apple was great at making great product and great software with a, a, a cultural medium in in music. And there was some ambition at the outset of, of the watch that they could pull off a similar feat and they could fuse their sophistication with making product and software with, with fashion. So fashion was a stand-in for, sport, for, for uh, music in this case. Um, and the reason that they were so focused on that was because they felt that if the fashion world rejected the watch and said, this is ugly and like you should never wear it, that it would just influence because the taste tastemakers there are so influential that it would, it would sour people on wearing the watch. Um, and they really wanted to get over that hurdle. They felt that hurdle was critical. I left pretty persuaded that that was, that was sound focus. And when you start at that point and you think, okay, well, we need, this was another challenge they faced. They were making a, a product that existed previously. So people were bringing their own expectations to it. Yes, we had mobile phones, but we never really had a smartphone until the iPhone, right? It really kind of created a category as much as anything. We've had watches for hundreds of years. So they had to straddle this kind of like legacy and, and invent kind of like a future. And, and the gold is, is rooted in that. Is it nonsensical, as as you all noted? Yeah, absolutely. Like, what what was the point of that? But were there were there tastemakers who that they who they got that watch to showed it off, uh, and, and it it's as a result influenced other people's perception of it? Yes, I mean Karl Lagerfeld, uh, Beyonce, some of these people had a chance to get that gold watch, and it and it and uh, and, it, and it did have some influence from a PR standpoint. Um, let's go to this one uh, from Ethereum West. Uh, not a security. <laughs> uh, did Johnny Ive leave because Apple got boring innovation-wise, or was it because he became less influential after Jobs passed? It's a combination of both. It's a really perceptive question, but the book really covers covers why both of those became true. Um, he was he was first of all tired after developing the watch. Uh, he wanted to step back. In stepping back, there were also changes at the company where more and more right brain leaders had influence. And while he was working part time with the company, that influence of right brain leaders only increased. And so his influence waned. And the combination of the two ultimately led to his exit. Fascinating. Okay, we're coming towards the home stretch, but I found this to be pretty interesting. John Basile, he says, um, they became the company they claimed to be fighting against 38 years ago. And then links the Apple 1984 ad where, you know, Apple, someone representing Apple sort of throws the hammer into, you know, this big, I guess, faceless character, which is, or face character, which is supposed to resemble IBM. But yeah, in many ways they have become, right. right? They, they are now um, facing lawsuits from, you know, many who say that they've become like this big, uh, massive company that, 
restricts their ability to do business and is actually squeezing the upstarts that they used to be all about. Right? Here's to the crazy ones, right? Their old commercial. Well, what what happened to that? What happened to that? Does the person who asked the question work at Epic? Because I, I do feel like this is like Epic's core core line of argument against Apple, right? Um, yeah, I mean they, they uh, that's yeah. that's the thing about getting getting big, and I think the struggle at Apple has been as you get that big, like they still, especially for people who were at the company when it was on the brink of bankruptcy and those people are still very much in senior leadership positions there, they still feel like, you know, the, the, the company, the, the, the small company they once were, that's still part of their ethos. And I think that creates some internal conflict where they behave in ways that can, they can have catastrophic, you know, impact on smaller companies um, and they don't fully appreciate their own weight and heft. Yeah. Uh, here's my last question for you. So I, I found it fascinating reading in the beginning of the book about Jobs' paranoia, about what Apple would become after him. Clearly, he knew there was going to be an after Jobs era. And he talked about companies like Polaroid, for instance, that never quite figured it out afterwards, or Disney, which like took a long time as a, as a struggling company before figuring it out. and. it's a huge and important thing that the successor is someone who helps propel the innovation versus let it, lets it slide. So I'm going to give you two options to, to sort of compare Tim Cook to, and I'm curious, who do you think he's closer to? Do you think he's closer to Steve Ballmer who was given this asset by Bill Gates, right? Windows and basically decided to milk as much money out of it. Who cares what the future brings? Or do you think he's someone closer to a Michael Eisner who had who resuscitated Disney by, you know, greenlighting lots of hits and, uh, you know, basically brought that company's mojo back? Which one does Cook more closely resemble? He's he's not Balmer because his success speaks for itself and because, um, because they have managed to launch some products that have that have really continued the company's. Uh, sales success in a way, and they haven't really missed something. I mean, that was that was the big knock on Ballmer, right? He missed he missed the smartphone. You can't really point to something that Apple's missed uh, that's been catastrophic for them in the way that missing the smartphone was for for Ballmer and and Microsoft. Izzy Eisner, Eisner had to come in and revive Disney, so it's hard for me to say he's Eisner. He's more Eisner than he is Ballmer, but Eisner Eisner really came in and, and revived. Disney after this period of dormancy, Tim Tim inherited a company that was that was poised to to go on a tremendous run because because the power and uh, popularity of the iPhone was only beginning to be unleashed. Um, as he came into his own, he's found a way to to squeeze more value out of that particular product and charted his own path. I think in the future it'll it'll ultimately be. You'll say there are three choices. Is he more like Balmer? Is he more like Eisner? Or is he more like Tim Cook or she, whoever the executive might be? And Apple, Apple's future, do you think is bright uh, moving forward? Or do you think there's that it's been soaring based off of like Steve Jobs' ideas, like the iPhone and eventually? I mean, even Air, I like think about AirPods, which are like, you know, those are headphones for an iPhone and a watch is for a watch. The Apple Watch is a watch for iPhone owners. So I got, I always do this. I said last question, but I, this is really the last one. <laughs> Um, yeah. So in the future, how, how they're going to, um, how's it looking? For Apple? The epilogue really highlights the clouds ahead for Apple. And, and, and there are some dark clouds on the horizon. The first being antitrust and the threat that it poses to the entire services business and that core app store business that is so central to the service revenue that they generate. And then the other being China. Um, we're in a, we're in a, a time period when the, when the when the plates of geopolitics are shifting in such a way that what may happen down the line could be could be catastrophic for Apple. I mean, if China were to uh, do something like Russia's done and, and preemptively invade a territory that they consider part of their country, Taiwan, what what does that mean for Apple? What does that mean for its manufacturing? What does that mean for its reliance on TSMC for the chips that power its products? Uh, and what does that mean for the sales of iPhone? 
and <laughs> I guess we'll, we. I guess we. we I guess we just. Yeah, that, that's going to be the story to watch. It would be. I'll end. It'll be. It'll be a big problem for the company. Um, yeah. Okay. After Steve, how Apple became a trillion-dollar company lost its soul is on sale this week. Congratulations, Trip. Trip is the author. Um, where can people find the book? Where can people find your work online? You can find it in bookstores, Amazon, uh, bookshop.org, and Barnes and Noble. Just about anywhere, anywhere you're looking. And then my work uh, on the future about Apple will be in, on the New York Times website. Okay, great. Well, I quite enjoyed the book. I really enjoyed learning kind of more about the history of Tim Cook, who's one of the most secretive uh, CEOs, in my opinion. And uh, it's great. It's cool that you went back to his hometown. And I'm glad you shared some of that with us today. So, folks, I hope you go uh, check it out um, and uh, and get a chance to read it on your own. Thank you again, Trip, for being here. Thank you, Nate Kowatney, for editing this. Uh, appreciate your work, Nate. And thank you, LinkedIn, for having me as part of your podcast network. Really appreciate that. Thanks to all of you, the listeners. Hey, if you're still here um, and you want to give us a rating, uh, five stars would really be appreciated. Um, we're almost close to 100, so maybe you could be the 100th and that will make you feel great. Um, sure, it'll make us feel great here at Big Technology Podcast. Also promised you my voice would be better after last week. Well, I've done all the exercises and I feel like I've brought the A game this week. So thanks again for being patient. All right, we will see you soon. We actually have a new bonus episode coming up pretty soon. Uh, with Rich Greenfield talking about the market. He's one of the best analysts out there. And I am totally puzzled by the market. So hopefully we'll get a chance to uh, bring you a bonus episode about what's going on pretty soon. All right, signing off. We will see you next time. Thanks again for listening. This has been Big Technology Podcast and hope you have a good one.